2 Timothy 1, 1 to 18. Paul, an apostle of Christ, of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am remembered of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remember you, excuse me, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and through life and, Im and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anasaphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you, and you well know all the service he rendered in Ephesus. The word of the Lord. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. 
heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please let me pray before you grab a seat there. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence with us. We ask that as we look into what you have to say for us, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Uh, we, we want to meet you. We ask that, that you would speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome. It's good to see you on uh, this, uh, this uh, beautiful morning. We've started a series in 2 Timothy last week, and this morning we're going to be continuing on looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the last half of that passage. Uh, you can follow along in your bulletin. And uh, 2 Timothy is a letter that is written to an early church leader named Timothy. It's written by the Apostle Paul. Paul's most likely in prison in Rome. And he's close to the end of his life. Uh, he's soon going to be beheaded. And so he pens this letter to Timothy, and it's a very personal letter. It's, it's a little different than the other letters you may be familiar with if, if you've read the other letters of Paul. Uh, it's not necessarily addressed to a church to, to look at uh, a problem that's going on. It's, it's a letter that is addressed to, to somebody who has a close relationship with them. It's, it's like we're listening in on the wisdom of an old man that is passing on something to someone that he's mentored for a long time. And we know it's important because that's the sort of thing that you focus on when you're facing death. You talk about things that matter. Death tends to bring things into perspective. When I was 18 years old, my father died. He was in hospice care for a while at the end of his life and he'd been unconscious for, for a time. But he came to shortly before he died, and he shared some words with my brother and I. It, it, 
I think it revealed what was most pressing on his heart as he was facing the end of his life. And the last words that he said to us, he simply recited Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. So it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And those are words that have stuck with me. They're, they're words that have shaped me. And so, so when I come to a book like Second Timothy, it's, it's a book that I really want to lean in. I want to listen to what, what Paul has to say. It's important. It's what's on his mind as, as he's coming to the end. So we're picking up on our passage in verse 8 of chapter 1. You can turn to it in your bulletin. It's where Paul has just reminded Timothy of the amazing heritage of faith that Timothy, Timothy has benefited from through his mother and his grandmother. Paul reminds Timothy about Timothy's ordination. It's the laying on of hands in verse 6. And he reminds Timothy of the gifting that he's been equipped with for being a leader in the early church. But Paul's also aware that Timothy holds back sometimes. He's timid. He, he withdraws. He hesitates when he needs to be bold. Timothy is reluctant to follow God. And so Paul reminds Timothy that he hasn't been given a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. So from verse 8 to verse 18, the main idea that Paul is addressing is that of shame. Shame appears to be what Timothy is holding back. Paul tells Timothy outright in verse 8, do not be ashamed. He then gives two examples of people who are not ashamed. Himself, that's Paul in verse 12, and then Onesiphorus in verse 16. So we're going to look at three things this morning. Exactly what is shame? How do we deal with shame? And then how do we live our lives when we're not ruled by shame? So first, what is shame? Why is it that we feel ashamed of certain things? There's a number of conversations I've had in the last few weeks where, so I've been looking at this passage, many people have expressed how much they resonate with this feeling of shame. And I myself resonate with, with feeling shame. It's something that, that I think we all face at some point. Shame is a feeling that is clo closely associated with another feeling, that of guilt. So guilt is a, a powerful emotion. It's experienced when one believes your actions or thoughts have violated some sort of standard, whether it's personal or moral. So, so for example, you know, I lied and then I feel guilty because it's not a good thing to lie to other people. There's some sort of standard that I've broken when I've told a lie. And shame is yet another powerful emotion. And it's caused by the belief that one is or one is perceived by others to be inferior or unworthy of affection or respect because of one's actions or one's thoughts or, or the circumstances or experiences that we have. So an example is that, you know, I told a lie. I might feel guilty that I did it. But even more, I feel like nobody can or should love or trust me because I lied, that I'm inferior because of that. That shame is, is taking us beyond just guilt. 
And shame can also come from an experience that happened to me that causes me to think that others think that I'm inferior. Just the mere prospect of thinking that someone else is thinking that I am inferior to them can cause feelings of shame. And the thing is, though, you, you can feel shame without that shame being driven by guilt. You can feel shame by, by association. So for example, uh, I grew up uh, feeling this sort of shame over my mom's culture and her ethnicity in the place where I grew up. My dad is Canadian, he's white. My mom is Indo-Trinidadian. She's from Trinidad and her ancestry goes back to India. And I grew up in Western Canada on, on the plains there and uh, it was a predominantly white culture. And so as a kid growing up in my desire to fit in, you know, you're shaped by the culture that's around you. Uh, you, you, you adopt the mannerisms and the customs around you. And so my skin color, my, my mom's culture, Trini food, mannerisms and accents and everything that go with that, those things became a source of shame. I didn't realize it as I was growing up. It's later as, as I, I began to embrace who I was that, and embrace my mom and her culture and ethnicity that I realized that, that I was feeling shame about that. But it was something that I needed to, to embrace and, and actually accept, take pride in. So, so there, there, there's, there's different kinds of shame. There's shame by guilt and there's shame by association. There's, that's shame. But you may be asking, well, how does this relate to our passage? What exactly is Paul telling Timothy to be ashamed of, or to not be ashamed of? What kind of shame is Timothy feeling or tempted to feel? We don't really want to read our experience of shame into the text. We want to see what the shame is and then, then see what it speaks to us. So if you look at verse 8, at first glance, it seems to be just shame that is by association that Paul is focusing on. It says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the sake of the, for, for the gospel by the power of God. There's two things Paul tells Timothy, and he tells us too, not to be ashamed of. The first is the testimony of our Lord. The second is of Paul being a prisoner. Paul's going to use himself as an example of not being ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. And then he's going to use Anisiphorus as an example of not being ashamed of associating with Paul as a prisoner. Don't be ashamed of associating with Paul, Timothy. Don't be ashamed of associating with the gospel that holds up a suffering savior like Jesus. A gospel that leads Paul into chains and facing execution. Timothy, don't be timid. Don't be fearful. But as Paul uses himself as an example, he pushes further into shame that is rooted in guilt. He push, presses into our deepest pain. It's a shame that goes beyond outward circumstances. He talks of, in verse 9, of God saving us and calling us to a holy calling. Paul is not about making sure that Timothy is all about pushing through shameful social situations simply on his own power. Paul focuses on making sure that Timothy knows that the guilt which anchors deep shame in our souls 
is exposed and dealt with by Jesus. So we experience shame through guilt and by association. How do we deal with this shame? This is the second point. Shame has this way of driving us to be really hard workers. You know, we hide in our work or we hide in what we're competent in. Or it crushes us and we medicate ourselves with distraction. That's how you know your shame is being driven by guilt. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. It's the story of the fall. It's the story of Adam and Eve disobeying God. They sin. And then when they realize what they've done, they hear God is approaching and they hide in shame. They're alienated from God. They're alienated from each other. They're cut off from the source of life and immortality. And, and we follow in their footsteps. We've all inherited this break in relationship with God. Our interactions with God, even with, if we acknowledge his existence, are tinged with guilt and shame, even if we can't put our finger on why that is. So how do we deal with shame? Well, Paul tells us that we need to respond to God's call. God, so we're looking at verse 9 again, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus calls us to follow him but he also enables us to follow him. He saves us and calls us by his purpose and grace. He wants to deal with the root cause of what separates us from God and plunges us into guilt and shame. He doesn't want us to hide anymore. Feelings have a purpose in us. They're not to be just dismissed or to be conquered. Feelings like guilt and shame alert us to something. They tell us that something's wrong, something's broken. But Jesus meets us in our brokenness. When our shame and guilt are driving us, we're confronted with his grace. And grace is simply God giving us something we do not deserve. He's being given something that we do not deserve, it's something we cannot earn by our own effort. No amount of philanthropy or right behavior or accumulation of experience or wealth can break the hold of shame. Grace. It's Jesus abolishing death by dying on a cross. Jesus bringing us into the presence of God, the source of life. When our shame and guilt are driving us to earn our way into God's good books, we're confronted with Jesus saving us, calling us to himself, removing our guilt and shame. Have you come to Jesus? Maybe you've never really accepted that Jesus deals with our guilt and shame. Maybe you're new to Christianity and trying to figure out what all this Jesus stuff is. Maybe you've been a committed follower of Jesus for years, but you're still driven by guilt and shame. The urge to give in to shame is what can drive us away from resting in God's presence. We all need to acknowledge the reality of guilt and shame and let Jesus remove both. 
once we've yielded our lives to Jesus' call, we begin to see what Paul is talking about in our passage, why Paul is able to endure suffering, even to the point where he is going to be executed, and why he's able to encourage Timothy to not shy away from suffering. Paul's not facing all of these things on his own. If we look down at verse 12, says Paul speaking, But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul knows Jesus intimately, and the same message of salvation that drew Paul into this intimate relationship has been entrusted to him. But it's not just not, here you go, see you later. Notice that Jesus is continuing to guard that which has been entrusted to Paul. This gospel that Paul so zealously proclaims to the world and does not change or compromise is actually guarded by Jesus himself. There's a content of sound words in this gospel, and Paul commands Timothy to follow this in verse 13. He says, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So the content of our faith is, is it's important. Yet again, it's not a call to do things exclusively on your own effort. It's by the Holy Spirit working. It's by God's personal presence with us that we receive it, that we guard it, that we share it. And so we deal with shame by embracing the content of the gospel, the good news of grace that invites us into the presence of God, that strips away that shame and guilt. And we experience a restored intimacy with God. His presence comes to us and empowers us to guard what he has given us. So what do we do when shame has been dealt with by Christ and we've received intimacy with God in its place? Well, what we need to do is we need to, to live into that new reality. We're no longer motivated by shame. And so we are freed to respond to what Paul is commanding Timothy to do. It's still difficult, but it's no longer the desire to look good in the eyes of God or any other people that motivates us. God's presence with us is what motivates us. Paul gives Timothy three commands in our passage. He tells Timothy, number one in verse eight, share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Second thing he commands Timothy is down in verse 13. He says, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from Paul in verse 13. The third thing he, he, that Timothy is commanded to do is guard the good deposit entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit. That's in verse 13. Once we're in this space where we are secure, that we're accepted by God, then we're in a place where we can follow these things that, that, that Paul's encouraging us to do. Paul has presented himself as an example of someone who is not ashamed and shares in suffering for the gospel. He's in chains. He has a death sentence before him. He's been beaten and left for dead before. 
He's been ridiculed. He's been rejected by his own people. He's had false teachers rise up against him and defame him. Paul has suffered. Prison in the ancient world was a harsh place to be. But it's God's presence with him that has sustained him through it. And this call to suffering is really hard to embrace. It's not something that we naturally gravitate towards to. And our culture is really all about avoiding suffering. It's more about getting ahead and being comfortable. And I think if we're honest, we tend to want to avoid others that are suffering too. To enter into someone else's suffering is an act of great humility. And maybe it's because it exposes our own deep pain that we shy away from others whose suffering is visible to others. The last person that Paul presents is Anisiphorus. Uh, he's presented as an example of someone who's not driven by shame. And he's pointing Timothy towards this example. He's pointing us towards him. Anisiphorus was actually driven to serve Paul when Paul was in prison. In verse 13, Paul expresses to Timothy that virtually everyone is turned away from him now that he's in prison. And Paul's bearing that stigma of an incarceration in a death sentence. Everyone's abandoned him. But Anisiphorus stands out. He's not ashamed of Paul's situation. He's not ashamed of the social cost of associating with a prisoner. Verses 16 to 18 say, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he has often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. We actually don't know a lot about Anisiphorus, but we see in his example that he's someone who is not crippled by guilt and shame. It's evidenced in the fact that he's not ashamed to serve someone who's been cast out to the fringes of society, to serve someone whose message isn't popular. So when shame no longer drives us, we're free to endure suffering ourselves and we're able to face suffering in others. And we're able to share the good news that's been entrusted to us. This is one of the ways we embrace our mission to see, describe, and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of the city that we live in. So I encourage you to not be ashamed of the faith that's been entrusted to us. Pay attention to what you feel and let it drive you into the arms of Jesus. And as Jesus strips away our shame, go boldly to those who suffer. Serve them. Love them. Share with them what Jesus has done for you. The Holy Spirit is with you. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.